Hello, everybody, and welcome. You have tuned yourself in to the Final Draft podcast. My name's Andrew Popel. I am the producer and the presenter of Final Draft, um, which is a show that broadcasts from 2SER, which is a community radio station in Sydney. And Final Draft is all about exploring Australian writing. It is a chance we sit down with debut authors, we sit down with established authors who have new books out, and these conversations are a way to look at the author's writing, and we tend to delve into things like character, uh, plotting, theme, the writing industry. All of this is a way to look at how these stories reflect the world around us. I've been making this show for over a decade now, and the show itself is is 30 years old, although the podcast is a little bit younger. So thank you for joining me as we enter a new year of the Final Draft podcast. One thing that we like to do at the beginning of every episode is acknowledge two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The the Gadigal people, the Darug and the Gunungurra people are the traditional owners of the lands that collectively uh, people know of as Sydney. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands and acknowledge that over the you know hundreds of years of colonisation in Australia that these are unceded lands and that a treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. It's our first, uh, it's our first show back with new, incredible, original stories for the year and our first author is going to be Sarah Sasson with her debut novel Tidelines. Tidelines is an incredible uh, book. It is part sort of an ode to Sydney and Sydney's writers will definitely recognise their city in this book. It is a book that explores memory and storytelling and identity and it is also a coming-of-age book with a tremendous protagonist. It was an absolute pleasure sitting down and speaking with Sarah and it's a great pleasure to be sharing the full conversation which ranges far and wide. So please join me as we discover Sarah Sasson's Tidelines. You are tuned in to 2SER 107.3. This is Final Draft. Thank you for joining me. My name is Andrew Popel. We are back for 2024 and it is my absolute pleasure to be welcoming our first guest, Sarah Sasson is an Australian physician and writer. Her poetry, short stories and non-fiction have been published in Australia, the UK and the USA. Today, Sarah is joining us with her debut novel, Tidelines. It's already met with acclaim being shortlisted for the Varuna House Publisher Introduction Program and longlisted for the Queensland Writers' Centre Publishable Program. It's exciting to be back. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And thank you, Sarah, for joining the very first, first guest for 2024. Thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here on the final draft. And yeah, this is my first interview for 2024. So I'm very excited to kick off the year as well. And what a book to start with. Um, I, I read I read this over the summer um, and we might get into we might get into summer reading uh, in a second. But I want to introduce Tidelines on a suburban street in the south of Sydney. Grub waits in her car. In the house opposite lives the man who was her brother's best friend. Grubb is there to confront him, to finally wring from him the confession that her family's life would have been better if he'd never entered it. Unfolding across the years of their adolescence, Tidelines is the story of Grubb and her family, of her bond with her brother and the different directions that their lives took. That, that, Sarah, that actually took me a little bit to craft because there's so much that I don't want to give away, but I really want to give the sense of... Uh, I guess the spaciousness, the time of this story. Mm. 
And okay, so I originally wrote this interview with an absolute wrecking ball of a question that was going to delve into the themes of Tidelines. And don't worry, that question is still coming up. But since since Tidelines has just entered the world and you are my first guest back for the year, I thought let's let's start a little gentler. Congratulations on publication. Like only a few days ago, I understand this was years of work for you. What is it like having Tidelines out in the world? Yeah, it's um, well, firstly, I think that was an amazing introduction. I'm always so fascinated to hear how other people um, read and interpret um, the book. So, um, yeah, and I I really enjoyed your little introduction. Uh, So, yeah, this has been a labour of love. Um, I really, yeah, it took me about five years to complete the first draft. I then edited for two years. Um, I attended a course at Writing New South Wales from first draft to polished manuscript. And then I was on the query road for about three years. So um, <laughs> I think if you add that all up, that's like a good decade um, before the book was acquired. And then, you know, and then you start all the in-house um, editing process as well. So uh, I normally would say I'm quite an impatient person, but um, if it's anything that this book has taught me is in publishing, um, you have to be patient. Um, but I have to say also with writing, I found... Um, whatever you pour into it, um, you usually get it back one way or the other. And, and definitely that's what I'm finding this week. It's been, um, just a surreal joy to see, uh, the book starting, just starting to appear now, um, in a few independent bookstores, um, and available online. And one of the beautiful things is so many people, uh, from my past and from my own adolescence and childhood have sort of reached out anew and reconnected with me. And it just really speaks to the power of language and literature that, um, yeah, I'm just having all these, um, reconnections and new conversations about tidelines. That, that is fantastic. I mean, I can imagine, I I learnt long ago as an interviewer, you do not deliberately or uh, you don't try to draw out too many parallels between the writer and their characters unless it's explicitly stated. But I could imagine a few of those people that are emerging to ask you about tidelines are, are saying, hang on, am I in this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a funny question. Um, actually, when I started first um, pitching the book, um, you know, I, yeah, I went to the course and I learned how to write a pitch letter and, you know, I clearly stated everywhere that it was fiction. But obviously because it's, um, you know, about a young woman who's grown up in Sydney, um, the first question everyone asked me when I was pitching was, well, is it true? And, you know, well, how much of it is true? And, like, which characters are true? And I just kept – it was really confusing for me because I kept going to my letter saying, I'm, I'm clearly telling everyone it's fiction. Um yeah, but um, I think, yeah, I think my sister um, has read it and, um, yeah, she gives quite a good, she described it as um, reading about her childhood sort of colliding with a Tim Winton novel, um, which I thought was quite a nice take on it. So, um, yeah, I kind of think of it as um, the stories and the characters, they're definitely uh, fictional, um, um, but they move through my world. Um, and in saying that, I guess, yeah, I've just... Um, I'm a new writer, and um, for me, that sort of felt the most achievable. Um, I was very in- always very interested in in character-driven um, novels, and um, and for me, yeah, it was just easiest for me to write about the places that I knew best, and and for me, that was Sydney. So, yeah, the characters in the story are fiction, but um, yeah, they're moving through my world. I love it. It's not you, but it's not impossible that you threw out your towel next to that person on the beach or stood behind them in line for a coffee. 
<laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> All right, right, let's get into the book. And I really want to start by focusing in on Grub as your protagonist. Uh, look, within the opening pages of the novel, we meet two very different versions. We mm-hmm. flip from the adult who is on the verge of perhaps a life-changing moment to the much less sure teenager at the start of a big summer where we're situated in the early 2000s. I'm really curious, where did it begin? Who was the original grub for you? Um, so, yeah, so I'll also say that before I even attempted this book, all I'd ever written was poetry. Mm. So um, the start of this book was really, I was trying to get some poems published and I started investigating, well, how typical would that be? And I found out actually it's incredibly difficult to get volumes of poetry published, but all the publishing houses were interested in was fiction. So the book really, I didn't begin with this big um, overview of what I was writing, but it was really a personal challenge to see if it would be physically possible for me to write a book length work. Um, So to answer your question, yeah, the novel started out, I guess, far more linear and yeah, really as young grub, we meet her for the first time when she's 14 um, and her older brother, Elijah's 17. Um, and then I guess it was far more linear. And then as I developed and edited the novel, um, I started playing around with um, shaking up the timelines a little bit. Um, yeah, there was a third timeline that got taken out along the way, but as it is, it's sort of, I think people have called it like an elliptical novel. So yeah, you start in the present time and then you go back in the past and then it, um, then you return at the end to the present time. Fascinating. I think I would challenge anyone to read Tidelines and not develop a deep affinity and affection for Grub. And, and as I did that, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder in, in that process of writing and considering and reconsidering Grub across some 20 odd years of life experience, did you have to revisit younger grub or reconsider older grub in light of your your growing understanding of her? Um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, the first thing I'll say is um, when I took the draft to my writing course, that just the name grub was quite polarizing for people and a lot of people didn't like the name grub. So it's interesting that that has survived because I think um, I liked it because it was you know, very Australian um, and it was sort of a word that was bandied about in my own childhood as a sort of, you know, a term of endearment or a sort of cheeky nickname. Um, So I think um, I find it difficult to read. So I read a lot of um, literary fiction similar to this and I find it very hard to invest in books if I don't yeah, relate in some way to the protagonist, especially when it's written in first person. So I was very aware of that. But I was also interested in that idea of, you know, human beings are clearly not perfect and, um, you know, we all have flaws. And that was interesting as I was writing her because, you know, you want the reader to be on her side, but, you know, she's not, she's going to make mistakes and do things that are unkind and, morally questionable um and yet it's an interesting line to walk because um yeah you still want to maintain the reader's investment in her um i saw her pretty clearly i think it's always hard um you know about three quarters of the way of the book um you know one of the main crises is um the disappearance of elijah and so really um we're seeing someone who we feel we know going through essentially the worst time of her life so far. And I so that's very interesting to write because um, 
I always remember something my mother told me when I was young and, you know, when we had funerals and deaths in the family and she always said, well, you know, grief does strange things to people. And, mm-hmm. and I did come back to that thought a lot. And, um, cause I think I was exploring that, well, what's grief going, um, to do to grub and, you know, we do need to see, um, those less, um, admirable qualities of her as well to make her human and believable. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you make a really important point there and I want to, I want to just acknowledge to our listeners that, Grub is this extraordinary character and you really do need to, to look past that name. And the only thing that I would say to your writing group is, come on, this is Australia. The harder you push back against a nickname, the more likely it's probably going to be engraved on your tombstone. I don't I, like, do you, do you remember, I'm forgetting, it was one of those old comedy shows probably from like the 80s or the 90s, Sarah, and it was one of Eric Banner's early characters. And I just uh, the only thing that sticks in my head was something about, you know, trying to give yourself a nickname and you had to pretend you didn't like it. And it was like, he was like, Demi, sex god from hell. No, stop calling me that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's so true what you say. And as soon as, soon as the person kicks back, that's mm. the moment that it's coined, right? As soon as you can see that there's a reaction, that's when it sticks. <laughs> um, I, think, I think in our family, grub was sort of like, you know, when you're covered with food or mud or a little bit um, dirty, you're sort of called a grub. And I liked it because it had connotations of sort of like, a caterpillar or something small that might grow. Mm. But yeah, I think the comments were, it meant different things to other people. Um, and yes, I think some people thought it was like derogatory. Um, so, and, and I fully accept that in some families, yeah, it could be, the name could be weaponized. Um, but yeah, I think overall it's sort of um, on balance. Most people had to sort of, it was okay um, it's, with the name. We've gone completely off track with my, my notes yeah. here, but it is an absolutely gorgeous origin story that I'm not going to spoil on air, but I just want to acknowledge to you. Um, did you, sorry, so did you have to write that after the pushback or was that was that story already in there? Um, no, I, I can't, can't remember. No, I think the origin story, I always liked that idea. I love the writing of... Um, MJ Highland and I love how um, she has the title and then at some point she kind of drops it in the story and I'm always like sort of secretly hanging out to see how she's going to do that and I kind of wanted to try that um, with Grub's name so I think yeah I'm pretty sure the origin story um, was there from from early on um, and th- yeah thanks for not spoiling because I like I like to give that to the readers as a surprise. Um, but no, I think I just was, I was just a little bit worried on the query that I might get pushed back on it. Um, but I think overall, yeah, Grub made it through. Uh, yeah. And, and look, I'll just tell you one of my interviewing secrets. This is just between us. The listeners can't, can't hear this. I like to drop those little nods where it's something that you and I both know, because I feel like that's, that's going to be a hook. And now some people are going to be just, even if it's only one listener is hanging to discover that wherever it is in the book. <laughs> Yes. Let's get back on track. Let's get back on track, though. Um, as, we, as we meet Grub's family, her parents and her brother Elijah, we discover this group of ordinarily extraordinary people. For Grub, they're, they're just her family, but she also has a sense of her brother's talents at the expense, I guess, of feeling quite plain herself. I feel like we all have a sense that our, our family are special, even if it's just because they're ours. Were there, were there challenges, though, in crafting, I guess, this really sort of intricate family dynamic? Oh, I really loved your your description of them as um, 
ordinarily extraordinary. I really like that idea. Um, so I guess I was just, what was I trying to do? Um, yeah, I definitely wanted to portray a very close family. And um, I was interested in the idea that I guess having a sibling or what, uh, your position in your family is kind of one of your first um, points of identity, like how we become who we are. And, and I should say from early on, uh, you know, I really had no idea what kind of novel I was writing, except I knew I was writing a coming of age novel and, and you know, a lot of debut novelists that sort of, it, it is a genre. So I knew I was writing that. Mm. Um, and I was very interested in, in that transition zone of adolescence. I think it's a really fascinating mm. time where we sort of move through childhood towards adulthood. So I think from what I was trying to do with the family was, um, yeah, it's sort of one of the first ways we define ourselves and certainly for Grub, um, she's the youngest and she's got an older brother who's three years older than her. And I guess I, I think older siblings will never understand the adoration that how they look to their younger sibling. And I say that as a younger sibling, so I've got an older sister um, and they're sort of just like these, they're amazing. When you're the younger one, you look and you've got this being who's always taller and stronger and better and has all these skills that you just can't, you don't have. And I think in the case of Grub and Elijah, you know, probably objectively Elijah is quite talented. You know, we see him, he's, he's athletic, he's charming. Um, he's very musical. So he, he does seem it's not, you know, it is through Grub's lens. Um, but he, he probably objectively is, is quite a talented young man. Um, yeah. And then, and then I wanted, well, with music, you know, often those kind of gifts do get passed down in the family. So the mother's um, a professional uh, cellist and, you know, there's this very special relationship between uh, the mother, Rebecca and Elijah through the music. Um, mm -hmm. And then the father is um, an academic. Uh, he's actually um, like a bird biologist. So um, yeah, that's the setup of the family. And I, I think what I was just trying to portray is, yeah, that ordinary extraordinariness. Um, but, yeah, I guess how Grub is trying to find her place in the world and that begins with um, how she feels within her own family. And um, she is in awe of her older brother and because they're very different, I think because of that and how she's treated at school sometimes, um, yeah, she feels a little bit um, lacking sometimes compared to Elijah. It's fascinating watching her journey. And again, without being too specific, it's it's extraordinary watching her come into her own power. And yet there is such a lag in her sense of, uh, I guess, realising it and appreciating it. And um, I, I mean, a really fascinating and fantastic character for that, who I have completely ignored in my questions until um, until I've just sort of thought of him now is Hyun. Uh, mm. and, and his you know, his growing relationship, which is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those books. I think any good book leaves you wanting more. And yeah. um, Hyun uh, is, is definitely that character for me. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hyun, uh, he's uh, a Korean Australian bookseller who um, Grub meets as she's going through a pretty awful time. She sort of stumbles into this um, bookstore and meets, um, yeah, quite an intriguing uh, young man who she develops uh, feelings for. But, um, yeah, so initially he came into the book, I think even later, and, and through the actual editing process with a firm press, they said the same thing. They're like, we need to see more of Hyun. He needs to come in far earlier because, um, yeah, we want to learn more about him. But I think what I was trying to... Uh, 
explore there was I like that idea of even when you're going through the most awful time in your life, um, small, wonderful things will still mm. be happening. And and that's what I loved about their relationship was um, she's actually going through a major life crisis, but in the middle of it, she stumbles into this this shop and she meets this person who, you know, we get a sense of is going to take her life in a new direction. And I kind of, yeah, I really love that um, she found him, you know, in those really awful years. Mm. Dear listener, Sarah and I are not promising that you will find salvation in a bookstore, but we can guarantee it's not a bad place to start looking. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> You'll never come out worse, will you? Mm. You make out with less money. You may, you you may never come out, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's an investment. Sarah, I, I feel like no book can ever be uncoupled from our experience of reading it. And I, I read Tidelines over the summer. Part one, you disarmed me with this vision of, of a halcyon Sydney summer that is, unfortunately, like too many of our summers, backdropped by bushfires. And that, that felt very emblematic to me. Um, that summer becomes also, it's almost totemic for grub. I was hoping we could talk about this sense that memory is never just one thing and how in Grub's story you show us how memory is constantly being remade through to our present and, and you know, that what that growing understanding means for us as people. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by, um, by memory. I think um, those, uh, the Black Christmas uh, bushfires with the, where the book opens, I mean, I was living in Sydney at the time and those weeks are really um, emblazoned on my mind, you know, just seeing, the blood red sky and and how the sun looked and I remember swimming with ash on the water and yeah it's really interesting when you sit down to write because for me memory helps me filter the information because ultimately the things that you keep come back coming back to are the ones with resonance and then you have to figure out well why are they resonant and you know obviously that time was resonant for a whole lot of reasons, but there were some really striking images just haven't left my mind that I wanted to open the book with. Um, and yeah, so it was just, but then as I was writing, it was like, isn't there some line about how you should never start with the weather? <laughs> you know, there's some were like, never start your book about the weather. And I was like, here I am doing it. Um, and then, um, but yeah, it did, you know, that was a while ago now, but then it only seems to become more relevant now when we talk, you know, with the um, climate crisis and, and, you know, even as I was writing, you know, more recently um, the terrible bushfires and then, and then towards the end of the book um, I finished with the Brisbane flood, one of the Brisbane floods where the river broke and um, yeah. So those two severe weather events kind of bookend the novel. And I just thought, well, um, it fit with the timeline, but it also kind of fits with, life in Australia now, unfortunately, um, you know, that's part of, that's part of our landscape. Um, and yeah, but I think they, when those massive events happen, you know, they're shocking and they do sort of, um, they do sort of mark our lives, you know, and, and when we talk to people, everyone will remember what they were going through at that time and where they were and who they were with. Yeah. And I mean, it's tremendous. We tend to, um, we tend to idealise summers, don't we? And especially the summers of our youth. But I, I have distinct memories of, you know, beaches uh, beaches swimming in, in the, the ash myself. And this novel, I mean, just, just on its surface, as people are discovering it in the bookshop, it presents like such a summer read. 
from mm. the cover to the opening sections. And I wonder if this is just going to sneak up on some people with its themes. Like, you know, they're going to be whiling away the last few months of beach weather and then they're going to be like, whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, it was funny when we were trying to find, to slate it for release and I think it was initially slated for um, late last year and then we held it. And, yeah, some of the conversations we were having with the publisher was like, oh, you know, it'll sneak on to the end of, you know, summer beach reading. And I I was like, um... You know, it's pretty sad. It's pretty sad beach read. <laughs> I don't know if this is what people want to be reading at the beach, but um, but um, yeah, I liked that uh, the contrast. I was really trying to contrast that part one, which is yeah, really that idyllic um, summer days on the Sydney beaches, which you know I think is coloured by um, you know nostalgia and memories because it's childhood. And I think part of part of that is Anna Grubb recognises as she grows older is you know, you are a bit blinkered in your childhood. You're not really, you don't see the whole picture. You don't have to worry about a lot of things. You know, she's, she has, is in some ways a little bit sheltered. And then this part two is really coming into adulthood where obviously, um, yeah, a lot of things are getting a lot more challenging and she's starting to see the world, um, you know, in slightly different ways, more expansive ways, I think. Yeah. And I want to, I, I do want to come into that as the, the novel evolves, as we meet grub as we meet her family into adulthood you've already touched uh, a little bit on elijah's story and i'm not sure how much you'd like to or that we're going to say about elijah but mm-hmm. i was hoping we could explore something of the themes of mental health in the book mm-hmm. and about now um i'm just going to give a content warning for discussions of mental health and mental illness if this is something uh dear listener that you don't feel ready for right now you can pop a pause on your listening um but also know that if this is something you're experiencing, that help is available and you can call Lifeline on 131114. Elijah is he is a fascinating character. He is, much in the same way as Grub, is someone that we come to love, but I guess we don't have the same POV um, understanding of him. Elijah's successes, though, belie his struggles. Did you want to challenge, I guess, those perceptions of, of who experiences mental health struggles through Elijah's character? Um, I definitely wanted to make the point um, that mental health doesn't discriminate, you know, in terms of privilege. Um, you know, Grubb and Elijah, um, you know, they have quite a comfortable, you know, especially, you know, when they befriend Zed as well. So Zed um, has a far more a rocky childhood and he grows up with a lot less and he's living with his aunt after um you know, issues with his own parents. So I definitely um, sort of wanted to make that point that, you know, people who look like they have it all on a plate like Elijah, you know, he's grown up very comfortable, he's got a loving family, you know, he's been dealt to hand, which is full of talent. Um, but, you know, he really struggles, you know, he starts to struggle in adolescence and then we really see it in early adulthood. Um, so I did want to um, make that point. Um, but when I was writing the novel, how it happened was I wanted to write a coming-of-age novel about ambiguous loss. And, um, yeah, mostly when we talk about the book, we talk a, to the point of Elijah's disappearance um, and really um, the ideas about addiction and um, mental illness. I had to come up with, at, in the early drafts of the novel, Elijah just kind of, he disappears in the third act. And I wasn't, 
I wasn't going to explain what happened mm. to him um, ultimately. And then I realized, well, that's actually very unsatisfying for the reader. So then I sort of had to work backwards and think, well, what would make a young man like Elijah disappear? What could be some contributing factors? And um, so, yeah, and that's when um, sort of his storyline started to be uh, developed. I mean, I guess that, that must have been a fascinating process because I, I, I think for all of us, whether we are experiencing um, difficulties and mental health struggles ourselves, or we are, you know, supporting someone or know someone who is, there can be that sense of looking back, of looking for origins, of trying to understand where this came from. Um, mm. And in, in Elijah's story, it, it, it really is fascinating. There was, there was this great sense of, I think I, I read this very quickly, so I didn't really have to delve back. I had it very fresh in my mind, but thinking, oh, here are some of the, I guess, the way markers that you have laid to, to help us see that um, th this was there to, if, if we'd observed it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I wasn't sure how, yeah, how picked up they would be. So when when I was interested, what were some of the things you noticed early on, or um, when did when did you start to have an inkling? Look, I mean, I should probably. I, 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 we're, we're going into the weeds now, but I I read this around the same time for for work, not for final draft for my job. I had. Um, recently finished reading the book The Body Keeps the Score, which is actually explores embodied experiences of trauma and ideas of complex PTSD and particularly looks at childhood experiences. So maybe I was primed, but I was really actually tuning into the way Elijah's talents were being, I guess, fostered in the family and the way they were perhaps being pedestaled. And the times that Elijah pushed back, the way that he was responded to, um, and this sense of, like, I, I, I guess what I saw there was whilst he was someone, even if it was only through Grub's eyes that we might describe as extraordinary, he very much was losing his sense of agency and losing his sense of self to the extraordinariness. He, he probably, I, I could imagine that Elijah was losing a sense of who he was as a dynamic person and becoming, whilst an extremely talented but more one-dimensional sense of himself. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, so I was trying to um, hint at some. I mean, I'll I'll start this with a waiver that's saying like I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a professional in mental health or anything. But but you know there is this idea that um, of a prodrome. So often um, you know adults who will go on to develop. Um, in mental illness, often there are these early hints which people call cause a prodrome. And I guess what I was trying to do was um, temporarily relate that to the summer that they meet uh, Zed. But, you know, we do see, um, yeah, him withdrawing into his room more. Grub makes a comment about, he, you know, he's sleeping a lot. He starts to have a shorter fuse. And, you know, it's, it's all very ambiguous about what are the contributing factors. But, you know, mm -hmm. I was trying to paint the picture of, you know, like a possible kind of prodrome syndrome there. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say that there's so many takes on um, Elijah and, and the music because I think, um, you know, we meet him and he has all the he seems to be very talented at it, but it's also very tied to his relationship with his mother. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think the mother's quite an interesting character because, um, you know, she's a professional cellist and she clearly wants Elijah to kind of follow in her footsteps and, you know, how much of that is kind of, um, you know, her self-centeredness. Mm. Um, and, and we don't know exactly 
how much, yeah, I think you're right. I think Elijah does want to define himself um, away from that. And we see him move into different kinds of art forms. You know, he starts becoming interested in visual arts and then and other forms of music as well. So I think he definitely has those artistic interests and passion, but um, he doesn't necessarily want to follow in his mother's um, footsteps. I think I think what I, where I want to go with this, it relates to the next question that I wanted to ask, but I'm going to maybe frame it a bit differently. As children, we also have a sense of, of looking out into the world and especially especially adults and most particularly our parents, seeing them as these complete people, like somehow they are finished projects and we are, we are meant to move towards that finished project. And very much in Elijah, um, Grub, we see this in Grub as well, but I think for Elijah, he very much is searching for that finished project and not realising that it may never happen. And that is something that he struggles to reconcile because... I mean, I think objectively we can look at what you've told us in the story and, and said that Elijah was an extraordinary and creative, talented person. It was never about his gifts. It was always about his ability to make peace with them, um, which is, which is yeah, really wonderfully teased out. And you show us the ways that perhaps his art was forcing him to expand out into the world and he was never able to capture that sense of himself and maybe when he locked himself in his room, when he did try to isolate himself, perhaps he was trying to contain himself a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I can say, sorry, I had a train of thought, but I can't remember what it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, just I was picking up on your point about the parents. Yeah, as children we look to adults and parents and think, yep, they're done. Um, and, yeah, that was really interesting because um, in the editing process, you know, when Grubb starts to worry about Elijah, there was there were really – there were sort of two readings of it. Like a lot of my first readers were like, um, well, why is she taking on so much responsibility? You know, it should be, um, you know, her parents. Like her parents are still – around like why aren't they helping and then the other half are like well why is she looking to her parents you know she's an adult now (laughs) and so I I found that really interesting and so part of the reason why we see um I guess so many foibles in the parents at first I kind of you know they both had very involved jobs you know Mm. the father's an academic the mother's a musician so there was a lot of reasons for them to be away but you can see I really turned the heat up on them um in the third act Mm. as well um for a couple of reasons. One, to make the story, the plot work, but also because I think, as you say, part of coming of age, you're seeing your parents and other adults in your life. Like you say, we're all kind of, we're all unfinished pieces, aren't we? And um, I also think, you know, I'm in my forties now, but um, you know, we think, you know, childhood, adolescence, adult, but I don't, I think we're all, we're all changing and growing and developing. And, you know, adolescence seems like this really visible, obvious um, stage, but I think every stage of, of our life we're growing and changing and still developing. And um, so hopefully we can see um, some of that too in the book. Yeah, it's tremendous. And I, I think to both of those sets of readers that were, were challenging you with these ideas, it's like, yes, you're both right, but yeah. it is never as simple. It's Isn't it amazing that, I think, again, thinking of two different sets of readers, you have readers who come to a book looking for a cohesive world and Mm. other readers come to the book just looking for reflections of the fact that they know the world is fragmented and that maybe they can see a different version that they don't already see in their everyday life. I found it really interesting, especially when you're writing about, you know, families in Sydney and you're sending it to sort of, local reader friends oh just how much people people always look for a bit of themselves in the story too I think I think that definitely comes back you know how that and so I think 
But when, when I started getting those opposing feedbacks about whose responsibility was, I realized, I'm ne- you know, there is no solution here. I'm just going to have to walk the line. You know, I'm going to have to make it believable for both because, yeah, it was an unwinnable situation. Oh, and it, uh, yes. And, I mean, mm. I, I think I think the fact that if you've got a reader that feels moved to, to say something, to challenge, <laughs> like that, that's the job done. Mm. Mm. Answers. When did the when did the world ever promise us those? <laughs> I'm just here to ask the questions. <laughs> I want to. This is. I'm. I'm going to say finally because this is the last question I've written down. But um, that doesn't mean we have to stop talking. <laughs> but finally, this this book Tidelines is at its heart. It's a book about storytelling, the stories that we tell ourselves, and the way that those stories can perhaps blind us to other stories and to the people who tell them. And I, I you've mentioned Zed. I really haven't asked you much about Zed, but I want to I want to draw on him here because it strikes me that his character is this tremendous example of someone who has had to reconcile the stories that are told about him, um, the stories that maybe he is made to believe are his story, and then craft a story that he can live for himself. He has the most extraordinary arc for someone whom you use quite sparingly in the book, but I wondered... Did you have that broader sense that you were telling a story about telling stories? Um, so I'm really glad you asked about Zed. Um, yeah, because he really broke the novel open for me. So, I, you know, I have to admit when I first wrote, you know, in my very first draft, um, he really, you know, he probably bordered on a stereotype. You know, he was sort of the bad influence friend and I was, I was very much... Um, I was exploring that idea of temporal association. So I I very much wanted him to come in to their lives that summer when Elijah started wavering and for Grub to be saying, you know, um, you know, you know, was it due to Zed or was it due to something else? Mm. That was sort of the central um, question. Um, But, you know, he was very much, um, yeah, he was a little bit of a trope in the early drafting. And as I was editing it, just still with myself, um, I had this day where he actually looked out at me from the pages and just said, um, you're just as bad as the rest of them. Like that's, he kind of just said that to me. And then I realized, um, that I had to see the whole story from Zed's point of view. Um, and I had to honor his story. And for that, that made the book so much more interesting. And last year I was at Sydney Writers Festival and I was listening to Charlotte Wood, who I've never met in person, but who I would love to. Um, and she said something really interesting. And she said, um, you know, if when you're writing, if you listen, the story will tell you how to write it. And that was definitely my experience. And it was really more than any book I read or my, any course that I did. Um, Zed was the one who showed me how to write this book because as, so, as soon as I started imagining how that summer and the subsequent summers looked for Zed, uh, it just created this whole, the story broke open and it created a whole new way of seeing the story. And then I had to honour both of their points of view. And, um, yeah, I actually refer to Zed as the second hero of the novel, because I do think Grub goes on a hero's journey. But as I, I said to my publishers, you know, I think Zed is the second hero of this book. Um, and, yeah, he definitely made it, um, yeah, a far more interesting work. And it is tremendous. And I, I, I latch on to the idea of the stories we tell ourselves because, I mean, so much of our reading experience, or I, I think 
so much of a fulfilling reading experience is exploring books to look at the world differently. And when we look at the world differently, we, we start to see ourselves differently. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean you have to identify with a character. It doesn't mean you have to situate yourself within a narrative, but if it helps you see your world, well, yeah, you've, mm-hmm. you've done something really interesting. And then, so a, just a tremendous, um, yeah, a tremendous reflection that I got from Tideline. So, yeah, I just... Oh. Thank you. I saw, <laughs> I, I saw your post on social media this morning and I thought you were just... I thought you were reading it today and I was like, oh, he's going to be a really fast reader. I thought you were just going <laughs> to like burn through the book today and then do the interview. And I was like, wow, he must be really fast. Well, so. this, is another, this is another peeking behind the curtains. So, <laughs> and I mean, look, the podcast listeners who get the, the full unedited interview, they're going to hear this, but this might this won't go on radio. We don't want to tell everyone. But um, two factors there. One was like timeliness. So I wanted that post to kind of associate with the interview going up to maybe draw people towards it. But also... Um, embargoes you would think I've been doing this like I've been doing this longer than you know some people have had careers and yet I still some of the vagaries I I still get a little bit afraid of like embargoes um so I read this yeah I read this about a month ago but I was like am I gonna get in trouble if I post something (laughs) yeah I I never knew either because yeah I was told about an official release date and then I was like but other people were posting their ARC copies online and then I was like, oh, do I like them? Do I not like them? But, yeah, no, I think I, well, I think as long as we're promoting the book. You and, know. That's, and that's the other thing is, like, I, I often get ARC copies and I never get a final copy. Um, mm. And it would, be, it would be so wasteful of me to say, hey, can I please just get a final copy so I can gram it? I mean, I'm sure publishers no. would probably do that, but... Uh, <laughs> so I posted my ARC because I also feel yeah. a little bit special that I get sent ARCs. Yeah, we should explain. Uh, Arc means advanced reading copy. If if people have never come across that term, yeah. So actually, yeah, the first time I saw the book was that yeah, the publishers sent out these advanced reader copies. Um, so then other people started posting them, but I hadn't held the book yet, so it was a bit like, oh, you know, my and, child's out there. And your arc is gorgeous. I am. Um, I was, I'd been doing this for a very long time when I had actually had, it was one of, one of my later conversations with Claire G. Coleman, if you've, if you're familiar with Claire's writing. Um, And it was, yeah, one of her more recent books where we were chatting and I I just sort of happened to drop that, you know, I I only got sent an arc, but the arc looks practically like the print version. And she told me that apparently the quality of the R, the quality of the, the advanced copy tells you a lot about how the publisher is backing it in. So the really the really spare kind of like maybe even like two or three colour um, ones are, you know, we're not putting too much of the budget towards it, but the ones that look almost like the the final product, well, that's the publisher's really backing that in. And oh. I don't know how true that is. I haven't verified that. That was just Claire telling me. Um, but I think she, she was reflecting on from Terra Nullius, her first novel, mm-hmm. which I think had a, a, a much more spare arc through to um, The Old Lie and then I've forgotten the name of her more recent novel, which is terrible of me. But um, yeah. the, the, yeah. the arcs progressively got more detailed. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, okay. Well, see, I'm very new on this journey, so I don't, yeah, I don't know much about that. But, yeah, I think my arc looks, I think it's pretty much the same. I think the, I've got the final copy here. I think it's a bit glossier than the, I think, the arc was matte, so it's Just got a, a bit more shine. It yeah. looks, it looks great. It looks Thank great. You, um, that was Alyssa Danalo, who um, I love her work. She does a lot of amazing covers. But yeah, it was interesting. I had exactly zero input into the cover, um, and 
they just sent it to me one day and I was so nervous, but then I opened it and I just, yeah, I just loved it. I thought, think they did an amazing job and um, yeah, I had no, no edits. I was just like, yep, that's it. That's the cover. Oh, fabulous. Um, <laughs> Sarah, before we say goodbye, we absolutely should mention that you are going to be launching the book very soon. Should, am I giving the details or do you want to give the details? Um, I, I can give the details. Please. So yes. So um, we're having the Sydney book launch for Tidelines, um, which will be on Thursday, the 15th of February. And it's at the Royal Oak in Balmain in partnership with uh, Roaring Stories, a wonderful independent bookstore, as well as um, a White Bay Brewing Company and a firm press are supporting it. And there's still tickets available. So you need to book because of the capacity. But um, yeah, if you jump online, roaringstories.com, um, there will be links to it. And I'm in conversation with uh, Dr. Deborah Adelaide, um, who's a lecturer at UTS and an author of uh, many, many books. Really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I, that sounds tremendous. And tickets are available through Humanitix. So you can go to events.humanitix.com. But also, if you don't bother with websites that I just read out, please just Google Tidelines Book Launch and you will discover it. <laughs> I am speaking. I am speaking with Sarah Sasson. We are discussing her debut novel, Tidelines. It is tremendous. I hope that this conversation has intrigued you and spurred you on to get a copy. Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Hey there, it is Andrew dropping back in again. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for tuning in and listening to my conversation with Sarah Sasson. Sarah's new novel is called Tidelines. It's out now from a firm press. Here at Final Draft, we record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. And that is uh, the, the people from the area that are make up Western Sydney and the Blue Mountains where I live. And we make this acknowledgement to acknowledge the ongoing and oftentimes fraught and unresolved history between Australia's uh, history post-invasion and, co and colonisation and the 60,000 plus years that the traditional owners of these lands have been on these lands. So the show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. And I would love, I don't, I don't know how you like to consume your podcasts. If you just, you know, love to just kind of tune in and discover new books, or if you would like to be more involved, maybe you're a book club person, you can always reach out um, and get in touch with the show. There are different ways to do that. You can drop a line to 2SER, finaldraft at 2SER.com. You can find us on our social medias. Uh, we are on a couple of different social medias. And you can also just um, give us a rating. Like, I, I, I like that as a way for people to discover the podcast. I'm, I'm being selfish here, like I'm self-promoting. But if, if you would do it, I'd be eternally grateful. <laughs> I am Andrew Popel. I am going to be back. We've got a whole year of incredible new Australian books ahead of us. But till then, happy reading. Whatever you're reading, I hope it's a good one. Bye for now.